Our scripture this morning is uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, and that can be found on page 178 in your pew Bible, and also be on the screen behind me. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today will, will, are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them to your foreheads. Write them in the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Our second scripture reading is Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. And that's uh, page 989 in the Pew Bible. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Well, good morning. You can keep your Bibles out. Uh, probably head to Deuteronomy. We'll be in that one first. Uh, if you're just joining us uh, this morning, I want to welcome you again. Uh, it's a privilege to be gathered, to be able to worship the Lord, to make much of His name. And uh, during the month of January, uh, as we've mentioned, we've been taking some time to give special attention to our vision as a congregation. About a year ago, we adopted a, a, a new vision statement, a, and which you know is a nice piece of paper in the foyer right now. Uh, and, and we've we praise God for some of the different ways we've been able to implement that vision over the last year, but we really want to stop and ask, okay, what does it look like? What does it mean for us to move beyond just stating what we believe God is calling us to do and begin living it out? And so we've been talking about that this month in January. Next week, we'll return to the Gospel of Matthew uh, as we've been going through that book. But uh, we uh, so far, we've looked at uh, the question of why the gospel must be central. Our vision statement says that you know, God is calling us to be a gospel-centered community living each day on mission for Christ. So why must the gospel, the good news of Jesus, be central? The good news of who God is, of what he's done through his son to establish his kingdom, to deal with our sin uh, through the cross and through his resurrection. Why must that be central? And we've talked about who are we in Christ? Who, what is our identity as a gospel-shaped community and how God has made us into a family of worshipers, of learners, servants, and missionaries. That was a couple of weeks ago. And then last week, we talked about our mission as a gospel-centered community, to make disciples for Christ, um, to help those who don't know Jesus to believe the gospel, to help those who do know him grow in uh, their dependence on the grace of God and applying that grace to all of life, and to help them become uh, ministers of the gospel, to equip them to be able to, to invest in the lives of others. Making disciples means bringing the gospel of Jesus to bear on all of life for all people. 
whether they know Jesus or don't, whether they live here or across the world. It's a call to bring the good news of Christ to bear on all of life for all people. Uh, we all need the same thing. Whether uh, we have never even heard about Christianity until about 15 minutes ago, or whether we have walked with the Lord our whole lives, what we need is the grace of Jesus, the power of the Spirit, uh, because we are, are sinful, broken people and needed a beautiful Savior, and that's exactly who Jesus is. And so that's what we're about. Um, and living on mission to make disciples is central to who we are as a church and where we're going. Uh, you dig in a little bit more into the vision statement that we talked about and adopted a year ago. One of the phrases in there is that you know, every member is a missionary and every sphere of life is part of our mission field. So whether it's the home or school or work or the grocery store or the dentist chair or, or whatever, all of life is part of our mission field and every one of us is called to mission. As we take that calling seriously, there's a stumbling block that I imagine every one of us is prone to trip over. And it is the question of capacity. Capacity. How realistic is it? If, if you know, we're saying God is calling us to, you know, to make disciples and that that's to be the center of who we are and what we do as a community. How realistic is it for us really to give ourselves to God's mission uh, when so many of our lives are already overfilled, stuffed to the gills with, uh, you know, family and work and soccer practice and play practice and church activities and community service and weekend recreation and so on and so forth. Uh, it feels like we're already full. So how do we, on top of all of that, become missionaries now where we live? What's this mean? What's this look like? Um, and whenever we travel to Nebraska to visit family, that's where I'm from originally, uh, my wife and I, when we begin packing, which is like a several-day process for us, you know, it, it looks like we've got a lot of room to work with. We get the suitcases out, and there's the piles of stuff. that, And it feels like, yeah, we'll be fine this time. Especially when you fly southwest. You know, you get two free check bags for every ticket. That's We have ten suitcases to work with, okay? We should be okay. But invariably, the night before, we're pulling stuff out, we're rearranging, we're sitting on the suitcase trying to get the thing zipped. You know... So many of our lives feel like that overstuffed suitcase. One more sock in that thing and it's all over. You know? and, and that's what we already feel like. So you, most of us don't have an extra 25 hours in our week. Or, or uh, you know, we're just, we're not that available. And so this idea of living on mission can be pretty overwhelming to think about. Now, there is the obvious reality that Committing ourselves to live on mission for Christ will require us to say no to some things, even some good things, in order to say yes to the call God's given us. I'm sure there's plenty of things all of us could say no to. That's not what I want to talk about this morning, though. This morning, I want us to see how living on mission together, living as a community to make disciples for Christ, is not about adding to our already busy schedules, but bringing a gospel intentionality to what we're already doing. So in other words, making disciples means bringing the gospel to bear on all of life 
for all people amid life's normal rhythms, amid the things we're already spending our time doing. That's what I want to think about this morning. So let's pray together as we, as we look at this. Lord, we recognize um, that you are a beautiful Savior. We recognize, Lord, that there's not a, a single person in here who has life all put together. Uh, we are all in need of you in terms of making yourself known to us and rescuing us for yourself and giving us the life and joy that we long for, uh, of refashioning us and reclaiming us for your glory and your purposes. And Lord, we recognize that is no little thing, but that is the thing that you are doing uh, in your people and through your people, calling us to live on mission. So God, give us uh, clear eyes this morning as we look at your word, unclutter our hearts as we think about so many different things weighing on us and distracting us. Uh, give us the clarity uh, to hear your voice this morning and to, to see clearly of where you're calling us to go and how we go about doing that as your servants, Lord. And so be with us and make yourself known. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we dive into looking at how our mission to make disciples is something that we weave intentionally into all of life, I want to take a minute to talk about why making disciples is important, uh, especially if you're here with us and, and you don't necessarily believe in Jesus, you're not sure what to make of him or, or what to think of this Christianity thing. Uh, why do Christians go around always talking about Jesus and the Bible and you know trying to get other people to believe what they believe about Jesus? Um, you know, if we're honest, some of us have probably had bad experiences with that. And so uh I just want us to ask, you know, what what's up with that? Why, you know, why can't you all just live and let live? Why do you, it's fine to have your beliefs, but why do you gotta push them on me? Why do Christians always talk so much about Jesus and making followers of Jesus, which is what the word disciples means, a follower of Christ. Well, hopefully nobody's, you know, belligerently pushing things or coercing people. Sometimes that happens and it's tragic, but I think it's important to understand the reason that Christians are so committed to helping other people become Christians. Uh, it's not because we think we've got it all together, though we can give that impression, sadly. It's not because we think we're better uh, than others. It's because we've found something, or rather we've been found by someone, and it's too good to keep to ourselves. You know, the Christian message, uh, what we call the gospel, tells us that God made all humans in his image to love and know and serve him, uh, but that we rebelled against God. We decided we would do a better job running things than him. And so we threw off his rule and in, in turn brought his just judgment on ourselves, his, his just judgment as king. That's called rebellion. And a holy God must deal with rebellion. He must judge uh, rebellion. And that judgment is eternal death. That's a big problem. Uh, but God, in his love, sent his eternal son, Jesus, to rescue us from that judgment and that death. And not only that, to, but to bring us back into relationship with him. So that we might live the way he created us to live. In that joy, in that, uh, that peace, in that 
joyful relationship with him. Christ, Jesus, lived a perfect life of holiness in our place. He died on the cross to bear the punishment of our sin. He rose from the dead uh, to bring new life uh, to all who will believe in him and to establish God's kingdom on earth. And so, in other words, the goal of Christianity is that sinful, broken humans might be restored to right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, that we might find our life and our significance and our peace in him. So if that message is true, and Christians obviously believe that it is, if that message is true, wouldn't we want to tell others about it? You know, think about it. Uh, if there is a God, and if he's holy, and he does judge sin, and that's a very real threat under which humans live, but if in his love he came down to us in the person of Jesus to rescue us from that judgment, and to reclaim our lives for what he intended them to be, uh, and if we can know this God through faith in his Son, not by putting on a show or being good enough or religious enough, but by trusting in him, then, you know, how unloving would it be to keep that message to ourselves? No, the um, outspoken atheist, Penn Gillette, who's part of the, the magician duo Penn and Teller, I don't know if you've ever, they're the ones who give away all the magic tricks, um, and he's an outspoken atheist. Uh, some of what he writes is stomach-turning. But he said one time, if you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell and not getting eternal life, how much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize? You know, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? And that's from the mouth of, a, of an outspoken, committed atheist. So, so we make disciples. We try to help people come to know Jesus and find their life and hope in him. Not because we're better than anybody, because it's the most loving thing that we can do. It's the most loving thing we can do. But how do we do that in such a way that doesn't add 25 more hours to our work week or make us have to get involved with three more programs and attend five more meetings and, and, and so on and so forth? By bringing a gospel intentionality to what we're already doing. Uh, making disciples involves working within the normal rhythms of life to bring the gospel to bear, the good news of Christ to bear on all people for all of life, those who know Jesus and those who don't. Think about, think about the great commandment and the great commission. Um, great commandment, uh, we find that in Matthew 22. Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. But the passage that Jesus is citing uh, as he talks about what it looks like to love God with all that we are uh, is Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 4 through 9. And as I read these, we heard them earlier. I want to read them again here. Uh, but notice how loving God and spending time in his word and sharing his word with others is not expressed primarily in special events or planned meetings. You can do that, fine. But it's not primarily in special events or planned meetings, but in the course of life's normal rhythms. Listen to Deuteronomy 6 again. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, everything you are. 
These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts and press them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses so when you're going out, you see them, and on your gates so that when you come in, you see them as well. So sitting, walking, coming, going, all of life is a classroom for the gospel. All of life is a classroom for making disciples. Think about the Great Commission in Matthew 28. We heard that this morning as well. Starts out, go therefore and make disciples. Now we hear go and we think almost exclusively, go to the ends of the earth. And that is certainly the central thrust in this passage. We are to make disciples, Jesus says, of all nations, all people groups, which requires that many will go physically even as many are sending them. But the way the word go is used here can also give the sense of as you go. So going, therefore, make disciples. As you go about life, set yourself to the task of making disciples of all people. And whatever you're doing, wherever you're at, bring the gospel of Jesus to bear on all of life for all people helping those who don't know Jesus to believe in him, helping those who do know him to depend on and and apply his message of grace to all of life and helping them also then to turn around and be able to minister that gospel to others. Bring an intentionality to what you're already doing in life and walk with certain gospel rhythms. So what does that look like, practically speaking? Um, What are some examples? Well, I want to look at seven Life rhythms. I know sermons are only supposed to have three points. We have seven this morning. Um, but seven parts of everyday life uh, and how with a little intentionality, those rhythms can actually display the truth and beauty of the gospel and also be a way of opening conversation for the gospel. Uh, and those seven rhythms are this. Celebrate. Listen. Eat. Work, rest, bless, and suffer. And I'll say them again as we go through them. Uh, the first one is celebrate. And just so you know, nothing I'm going to say here this morning is original to me. I'm drawing heavily on other pastors and church planters that I've been learning from, uh, particularly a, a group out in Tacoma, Washington, another one in Omaha, who've been doing a lot of good thinking on these things. And so I'm just... Uh, processing that and, and applying it to our context. So, so the first rhythm here is celebrate. You know, think about it, celebration is a very natural rhythm or pattern of life. Uh, the Bible's full of people celebrating, celebrating God's goodness in creation and God's uh, marvel of, of, of his saving grace. You know, when God finished making the creation in Genesis 1, you know, and he evaluated it, he said it was very good. God enjoyed what he had made, and he invites us to enjoy what he made as well. You think of Psalm 104. He makes grass grow for the cattle, plants for man to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, bread that sustains his heart. We should celebrate God's goodness in creation. And 
We should celebrate his saving grace. Uh, if you think back, if you've heard the story of Israel coming out of Egypt, how God rescued them miraculously from 400 years of slavery and brings them through the Red Sea. What's the first thing they did when they got through the Red Sea? They threw a party. They celebrated. They broke into song. Moses and Miriam, and, and, and they grabbed the tambourines, and it was a party. We celebrate God's saving work. That's what we do every time we sing on Sunday mornings together. It's what we do every time we observe the Lord's table or have a baptism. We're celebrating God's saving work. And as one pastor notes, celebration is not unique to Christians. The people around us are also celebrating. They're just rejoicing in a different God and a different story. Uh, but the gospel frees us to enter, enter redemptively into their celebrations, just like Jesus did. You think of how he attended the wedding at Cana. He joined in their celebration and made it even better. You know, the gospel frees us to enter redemptively into their celebrations, looking for common ground from which to build relationships and to bring the gospel to light. And parties are a great place to get to know people, to build relationships. Uh, and it's not hard to invite people over to watch the Super Bowl. You know, you're going to watch the Super Bowl next Sunday anyway. You might as well make it an opportunity to get to know your neighbors and friends and, and to love and serve them at the same time. It's a natural rhythm. Um, or maybe your home fellowship or the small group that you're part of. Maybe you throw a party for your neighborhood, big barbecue, just to say, hello, we love you, and, and have them over. Or, you know, how many birthday parties do you attend in a year? How many birthday parties are your kids invited to? Celebrations and natural rhythm of life. And it's also an, uh, a great opportunity to open doors for questions. Um, baptism and communion, specifically, those are celebrations that God has woven into the life of his church for the explicit reason of triggering conversations about who God is and what he's done and what really matters in life. They're, the celebrations open up conversation and life questions. Parties have a way of revealing what we're really worshiping, too, don't they? You know, it's, I find it interesting how uh, we can become more animated about the outcome of a football game than we do sometimes when we gather and celebrate what God has done for us in Jesus. It's just kind of interesting. Um, you know, when we celebrate, we enter into one another's lives. We enter into one another's stories. So how can we be intentional about that, about bringing the gospel to bear amid our celebrations? Think about the things that people around you celebrate. You know, birthdays, holidays, political victories, sports teams. What are they seeking or pursuing or looking for in those celebrations? Ask yourselves those kinds of questions. You know, is it meaning? Is it acceptance? Is it love? Is it justice? Is it release from our problems? What are they seeking that makes this such a big deal. And then, how does the gospel complete that story? In other words, how does the gospel actually provide what they're looking for? Among those things. I heard a pastor once uh, say that Christians should throw the best parties because we have the most to celebrate. Think of all that we've been rescued from. Think of all the lavish grace of God on us though we deserved something completely different, how might we reflect that in joy and generosity 
in celebration to others? How can that display the beauty of the gospel and open conversations to talk about what matters in life? And it's something we're already doing. We're celebrating. So that's the first rhythm to be intentional about. The second is listen. Listen. People are always listening to something. You're listening to me right now, or you may be listening to yourself, thinking about it, you're planning the day and what all you have to do when you get home, or you might be listening to the text message. You're, you know, We're always listening to something. Think about how many messages our brains have to process in a day. You know, the news, the media, uh, commercials, friends, teachers, bosses, Facebook, Twitter, texts, and so on. And then there's this thing called personal conversation that also happens. Um, you know, and listening is central to the Christian life, too. It's not just common to what we do. It's central to walking with Jesus and sharing life together. We listen to God and his word, and we listen to one another. Uh, scripture tells us, be Quick to listen and slow to speak, especially in that context. Quick to listen to God's word. But we need to be quick to listen to one another, too. How often do we spend our conversations thinking about what we're going to say next instead of actually listening to somebody? I am so guilty of that, so often. What happens in our relationships when we're actually more interested in knowing someone than making our own ideas known. What happens? Think of the love that that actually communicates when we listen, when we listen well. Moreover, listening to others helps us discern their stories and experiences that have shaped them so that we can understand their point of view and help them discover where God's gospel story intersects with their own. So we get to know them and, and see things from their perspective and help connect them with the story that Jesus is telling. Whether it's our own children as we seek to raise them and disciple them. Are we listening to them? That's one of the things my kids get so frustrated with me about sometimes. And I see they're doing something wrong and I'm just trying to correct it. And, Dad, you didn't even listen to me. This is what was going on. It's a shame, you know. How much... Do we listen or, or, you know, listening to our neighbors or our colleagues as they dump about the problems in, in life, their frustrations? What if instead of speaking immediately, we took the time to listen? And how would that help us know then how to actually more directly apply the gospel of Jesus to their life story? To, to apply it to the questions they're actually asking and dealing with by taking the time to get to know them. Remember, uh, spending a, um, a week with a young man who was caught smoking pot by his parents and was shipped by them to come stay with Carissa and I for a week. Uh, so, you know, talk about serious punishment. Uh, you know, there they was some upheaval at home, and they were hoping that you know, the somewhat stable environment that maybe we could speak into his life and so on. And, and so he spent a week with us. And uh, we spent time, he and I, talking every day, um, we went for a hike, we hung out in my office, on campus, at home, we read a book together. And as we talked, and as he told his story, and particularly complained about how stupid and unnecessarily restrictive the laws were that outlawed marijuana and those kinds of things, it became clear um, that he saw God's law in the same way he saw the nation's laws. Out of touch, un- unnecessarily restrictive, and just stupid and pointless. 
And as the week went on, it dawned on me that what this man has heard about Christianity his whole life was not the life-changing, liberating truth of the gospel, but the oppressive, out-of-touch, and impossible life of a rules-based religion. That's what he thought Christianity was. If you put it in terms of the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15, what he heard was, stop living like the younger brother and rotting your brain on pot, and instead start living like the older brother, nice and compliant, who does everything he's supposed to so we can act like everything's okay. And he wanted nothing to do with that kind of hypocrisy. The only problem in that parable is that both of those sons are lost. Neither of those sons have the father. What he heard was not a call to the gospel of grace, but to religion. Now, I'm not saying that's what he was told, but that's what he heard. That's how he processed it. And so my goal that week became to help him see that the gospel is not keep these rules, put on the show, and then everyone will get off your back, including God. But rather, you can't keep these rules But Jesus kept them for you, and he took all your screw-ups on himself, on the cross, to take away your guilt and your shame, so that when God looks at you and lavishes his grace on you, he sees his son. And when the gospel gets a hold of your life that way, obedience is a joy. It's not this burden. It's a life-giving joy of worship and honor to a father who loves you that much. That's what I wanted him to see. So are we, are we taking the time to listen and really hear the stories, to hear the perceptions? Sit down with a non-Christian and say, so what do you think about Christianity and what these crazy people are doing? What do you really, what does it really look like to you? Hear that. Enter in. Get to know them, which helps us not only love them, but be able to, to maybe clarify. Here's what the gospel is, and here's how it speaks to that part of your life. So celebrate, listen. Number three is eat. I like this one. Eat. Again, you cannot get more basic to life rhythms than eating. We need food to live. And our need for food daily is designed to remind us of our daily need for the God who provides it. Think of the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. And yet the experience of a meal, when it's shared with others, is not just to nourish our bodies. It's far bigger than that. It's communion. It's fellowship together. Uh, That's why breaking bread was such a normal pattern and the life of the early church, and you see that in Acts. That's why most of the meals, or most of the, the meetings that I schedule, probably about half of them, I'm either having coffee or a meal with someone, because that's where life is shared, uh, over, over food. God designed it that way, and I like it. And like everything, eating is to be done to the glory of God. What's that mean? You know, you think of 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So eating can be used and should be used as part of our disciple making. Um, Every one of us eats about, give or take, 21 meals a week. 
How do we make the most of those for bringing the gospel to bear on the lives of others? Are we sharing meals in our families, you know, sitting down, processing the day, talking about life? Are we opening those meals to others, inviting people into our homes, getting to know them, letting them get to know us? I've mentioned um, this before in the past, but what if everyone here ate at least one meal a week with someone who doesn't know Jesus. Just one. you got 20 others you can keep to yourself. Just one. What might God do to forge relationships in getting to know others? We're talking about real life. To share a meal with Jesus. What a tangible opportunity to express our gratefulness to God for his provision. And to point out that just as our bodies hunger and thirst for food and drink, there's a hunger in our souls that no food or anything else can quench, but that there's one who came and described himself as the bread of life who can give you something that will never perish or spoil or fade. Great opportunity to share life together. Celebrate, listen, eat. Next is work. Work. It's our fourth rhythm. Work is part of God's creational design for humanity. Uh, When God placed the man in the garden, before the fall happened, he placed him in the garden to work it and to keep it. Uh, So work is part of what we do as humans. We spend most of our day doing it. When we're not sleeping or eating or, or spending time with family, we're working. And whether that work is, you know, uh, whether our place of employment is somewhere else that we go to, or maybe two or three places we go to, or maybe our place of employment is laundry and raising kids at home, we're all very uh, busy with work. Or whether it's studies at the school, you know, that's your work, students. So we have this in common among all peoples, among all cultures. How do we make the most of our work to display the gospel and to open doors to communicate it? Sometimes we think that living as a missionary means that the only spiritual value my job has is if I hijack a conversation in order to talk about Jesus. And that everything else is just kind of there, but the real stuff is when I can... Now, I'm not getting down on sharing Jesus. That's awesome and essential. But that's that's an unfortunate misconception among Christians today that work has no value except for those moments of evangelism. Our work is an avenue for our worship because everything is to be done to the glory of God. Everything. Uh, you know, Paul says in Colossians 3, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. And you think of very easily applying that to our working relationships. You know, are you following your boss's instructions when he's looking only? Or are you doing what you need to be doing uh, regardless out of sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord? Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. Not for men since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Do we see our work not as a distraction from our mission, but as part of our mission field? 
part of our mission field. To bring honor to God by being the best employee we can be and displaying the character and virtue of God in that and helping people know Christ and apply the gospel of his grace to their life, to their work, to their relationships. What difference does Jesus make for our work? You know, um, How might the finished work of Christ on the cross satisfy our hearts when our work never seems to be finished. You know, the stack of tax returns just gets higher at the end of the day instead of lower, or the the pile of dishes or laundry or whatever. How might the fact that Jesus is finished work and our union with him, how do we find our satisfaction in that even when our work is never done? And how does that change our hearts and our attitudes? How might our union with Jesus free us from finding our identity in our work? You know, when, when, and especially for guys, but I think all of us do this, we find our identity in what we do with the work of our hands. And so when times of dry seasons and unemployment and, and job transition hit, it's not just a financial problem. We don't even know who we are anymore. How might our union with Jesus as God's son, that's who we are. How might that bring a stability and a joy regardless of what's happening on the job? And how might we come alongside those going through these things with that? How about, how might the promise of resurrection that we find in, in 1 Corinthians 15, that our work in the Lord is not in vain, how might that give significance to even the most menial tasks? That our work in the Lord, if it's done under the Lord, it's not in vain. It's not in vain. So we bring the gospel to bear amid our work. But after work follows rest. And that's the next rhythm. Number five, rest and recreate. When God finished creating the universe, he rested. And though cultures uh, differ on which day and how and in what way to set it to do it, most of the world follows God's pattern of working hard and then resting. Rest is a natural rhythm of life. And God wove it into humanity as a constant reminder, a regular reminder that he is God and that we are not, and that the world will keep spinning, the, the company will stay afloat if we take one day off. That's, that's hard when it really comes down to it. And actually, you know, well, if I, if I don't go in and do this, or at least, and I'm speaking to myself here, at least check email on my day off, then, then all's gonna fall apart. Well, I'm putting myself in God's shoes. God doesn't need me to do that. I can take a day off and acknowledge that He's God and I'm not, and I can rest. And with rest comes recreation, sports, vacations, going for a walk, stepping aside from the normal pattern of work and changing gears, again, because God is God and and, and he can keep the world spinning without me. Including others in our rest and recreation, again, is a simple way to spend time with others and to bring the gospel into the life, into the conversations. When I did campus ministry, um, I used to do several of my meetings on the disc golf course. And so we would, I don't you know, frisbee golf, the, the kind of thing where you throw it and there's a basket with chains and such. Um, it was a great way to spend time with college students. It was fun. It was relational. It lent itself to conversations. It was active. It was a great way to spend time. A good friend of mine who was uh, a mentor to me, uh, we had most of our meetings in the weight room. Because he was working out, and if I wanted to spend time with him, that was time to go do that. And it didn't add anything to either of our schedules. Um, 
Maybe it's, uh, you know, think about how you can include others in, in, again, what you're already doing in terms of rest or recreation. Maybe it's the single mom who needs just two hours to herself on Saturday to restore sanity, and you're already taking your kids to the park, you know, why not just pick up her kids as well and give her that space? How can we move, just weave our rest together in terms of loving and serving others? You know, rest itself also displays the beauty of the gospel. Because God's saving work in Jesus is finished, we can rest in him. The worry, the frenzy, the busyness that dominates our lives, um, that defines us so often, you know, Despite all that chaos, we can find our rest and our peace in Christ because his work is finished. And he invites us into an eternal rest uh, that can never perish, spoil, or fade, as Peter puts it. So we celebrate, we listen, we eat, we work, we rest. Number six, we bless. We bless. One pastor writes, uh, One way to tangibly express the gospel is to bless and serve others in practical, tangible ways. After all, this is how God has treated us. Though we were entirely undeserving, he has chosen to bless us with every spiritual blessing. Ephesians 1. He does this, the author continues, not for our own private good, but in order that we might freely give to others. The gospel frees us to pour out our lives and our possessions so that others might be blessed through our generosity and see the gospel in action. So think about the ways God has blessed you personally. God blesses us in order to be a blessing. How has God blessed you personally? Or your family? Or your small group? Your home fellowship? What gifts and resources do you have already in front of you that you can intentionally use to be a blessing to others. Is it, you know, maybe you're, if you think about your home fellowship, or your men's group, or whatever community you're part of, maybe you're rich in time. Maybe you look at your resources and you, we've got some time on our hands. So how might you partner together to visit the sick and pray with them, open God's word with them, or to serve others who've got household projects, whether it's, it's your neighbor next door, whether it's a brother or sister uh, in the Lord, in the church. Um, you know, how might you use that time to be a blessing? Maybe you're rich in wisdom. God has given you much experience in life. How can you share that wisdom and offer counsel to people? How might you come along and mentor others and use that gift God has given you? Maybe you're simply rich in money. How can you bring relief to those who are in need financially? How do we use what God has given us to be a tangible blessing to others, and how might we organize ourselves in such a way that our fellowship is not just aimed, you know, at helping each other inward, but also ministering outward, being a blessing to our city, to our neighborhood. If we became known in our city as a community that consistently searches out and finds ways to bless others, how would that be received? How might it make the gospel tangible to others? But in displaying the gospel through loving and serving others, we must also look and pray for opportunities to share Jesus verbally. Um, you know, there's an old saying, uh, 
wrongly attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. And I'd just assume it go out of existence. Uh, preach the gospel always, if necessary, use words. It's cute, but it's not true. The gospel requires words because the gospel is news. Nobody is going to look at your life and say, wow, this person watched my daughter for me. They, they picked up trash at the park last weekend. They, they brought a bag of groceries. You know what? I'll bet that God exists and that he sent his son to die for my sins so that I could know him and spend eternity with him in heaven. It doesn't work that way. Nobody's going to draw that conclusion without us connecting the dots, proclaiming the gospel message of Jesus. So we must look for opportunities. How can they believe in one of whom they have not heard, and how can they hear without someone preaching to them? So blessing is a natural rhythm of life, and if we approach it with intentionality, it can be a beautiful display of the gospel, and it can open all sorts of opportunities for conversation. Celebrate, listen, eat, work, rest, bless. Now finally, suffer. Number seven is suffer. Because we live in a fallen world, a world that doesn't work the way that it's supposed to, having been stained by human sin and rebellion, suffering is also a normal pattern of our lives. We lose jobs, we lose money, we lose loved ones, we miss out on opportunities, people take advantage of us, we take advantage of people, and as followers of Christ, we will find ourselves opposed and even persecuted by the world, just as the world treated Jesus. Suffering is an unfortunately common mark of life in this world, so what would it look like for us to share in the sufferings of others? To go beyond the obligatory condolence and actually weep with those who weep. To enter into their story in their life. To, to help them give voice to their pain. You know, Think of the laments in Psalms. It's amazing to me how many of the Psalms are designed to give voice to our frustrations about life in a broken world. Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you turn your face from me? How do we come alongside them to help them give voice to their suffering, but then also to help them lift their eyes above that suffering to one who took that suffering on himself, who, who entered into our story, who bore our griefs and carried our sorrows and suffered in our place on the cross? As Hebrews tells us, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. One of the incredible uh, there's so many blessings of, of knowing Jesus, Jesus, but one of the incredible gifts is that Christians don't suffer the way the world suffers. We hurt just as bad. Uh, our hearts are, are just as deeply broken, but the difference is that we grieve with hope. We grieve with hope. 
we know that because of the cross and the resurrection, that sin and pain and death are not the final words. That's not how the story ends. It hurts just as much, but we know there's something more. We know that there's a God who's in control of it and a God who's more powerful than it, and so we can grieve with hope. Hope of the resurrection to come, hope of new creation, hope of this terrible story called my life being rewritten and uh, redeemed as part of God's story of life and love and eternal joy. What if the church looked more like what we see in Hebrews 10, 32 through 34? Remember those earlier days when after you had received the light, when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. What have we thought about suffering in those terms? You know, what... What kind of testimony might we give to what really matters in life? How might we be better equipped to walk with those who are hurting? If that's the attitude of our hearts. Living on mission doesn't have to be a complicated thing. You know, we have normal, natural rhythms of life. That doesn't mean it won't cost us. It does. It costs us everything. Uh, it's a complete surrender of our lives, giving everything we have and all we do to the Lord for the sake of his glory. You think of Jesus' own words in Mark 8. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul. So, it costs everything. But it doesn't mean that we have to change occupations or add a whole other job to our already busy lives. God may call some of you to do that. But for most of us, making disciples means bringing the gospel of Jesus to bear on all of life for all people amid life's normal rhythms. Bringing a gospel intentionality to everything we're already doing and doing it unto the Lord. So may God give us the grace as we think about this year ahead, as we think about you know, taking the next steps forward on our vision, what he's called us to. May he give us the grace to live all of life for him and for his calling as we partner together as a gospel-centered community living each day on mission for Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we long to know you more. And we long for others to know you. And Jesus, we recognize that there are so many things in our hearts that get in the way. Our pride, our agendas, our ideas, our fears, our insecurities our questions, our doubts. Lord, take these things. Show us yourself. 
Make us more passionate about you and your gospel than we are about anything else. Help us not create a false dichotomy where work and and eating and these kinds of things are are, are just utilitarian. Uh, Lord, they're gifts from your hand, but they're also gifts with a purpose to make your name known in our lives and the lives of others. So I pray that you, your spirit would be at work in us, that we would lay our lives down joyfully, that, that you would give us ideas and, and help us how to make the most of the days you've given us to make your name known. Lord, we long to be useful to you. We long to bring glory to you. Pray as we look to this year ahead, you would give us special wisdom and insight, Lord. Our ministries, think of our annual meeting coming up, Lord. God, I pray for a sweet unity and joy as we think about what you're calling us to, as we look ahead, as you raise up uh, leaders for this congregation. Would your spirit be at work in each one, uh, helping us work together as a body, as a community, on mission for you. Lord, uh, give us joyful unity uh, in that meeting and, and as we move forward. Lord, we think of those who are serving your mission on our behalf uh, outside of this congregation, this community here. We think of our missionaries, in particular Rich and Sue Forsen this morning, their work in Romania. Lord, would you bless them as they prepare to return in a month or, or so's time? Would you help them to make the most of every day for the sake of your gospel, laying their lives down, raising up others, training up leaders. And Lord, I do pray that you would be raising up leaders to, to take uh, the helm of this church that, they have, uh, that they've been leading uh, for when they uh, come home someday, Lord. Would you raise up Romanians to lead that flock, Lord, uh, with faithfulness, with integrity, uh, and with joy in Jesus. We ask your blessing on them. We pray, Lord, for the needs that we have as a congregation. Lord, you know every single one of them. You know the ways that our hearts are heavy. You know the ways that um, we're discouraged and disenchanted. Lord, would we see the beauty of your grace in the midst of that discouragement. We know the the tangible uh, challenges that, that face us. You know them, Lord, whether they're financial, whether they're broken relationships, um, job uh, job loss, Lord. You know what they are, and I pray that you'd minister to us in the midst of them. We pray for those who, uh, with physical health needs. Lord, we praise you for um, that Julio is with us this morning after having a stint uh, put in this week. Lord, we thank you that you brought that to light before any damage had been done to his heart. Um, Lord, that we just give you the, the glory for your protection on him. We pray for Jim Medallia that you continue to help him recover, Lord, uh, from pneumonia. Just be with that dear man and remind him of your joy and your presence with him through Jesus, through your spirit. Lord, we pray for those battling cancer. Again, within our, within our flock, Mary Boy, Lord, would you bring healing to her? Would you bring healing and comfort peace and joy, Lord. We pray for those who are dear friends of us, um, for Steve Gerber, for 
Bob French, for Rick Brown. God, would you continue to have your hand of mercy and healing on these people? Lord, we give you praise and we thank you that you've rescued us and that you've knit us together as a community and that you've given us a purpose. By your grace, may we be faithful to that purpose, even as we depend daily upon your grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.